February's audiobooks are brought to you by Copper Cow Coffee. All February long, we will be doing astounding tales of super science all February long. And if you like it, we'll do it all year long. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you have a great February. And if you're listening to this in the future, I hope you had a great February. All right. Here we go. Astounding stories. Copper Cow Coffee. Link in the show notes. Recording by Kathy Wright. Astounding Stories, February 1930. The Beetle Horde by Victor Rousseau. Conclusion. Tommy Travers and James Dodd of the Travers Antarctic Expedition crash in their plane somewhere near the South Pole and are seized by a swarm of man-sized beetles. They are carried down to Submundia, a world under the Earth's crust, where the beetles have developed their civilization to an amazing point, using a wretched race of degenerated humans whom they breed as cattle for food. The insect horde is ruled by a human from the outside world, a drug-doped madman. Dodd recognizes this man as Bram, the archaeologist who had been lost years before at the Pole and given up for dead by a world he had hated because it refused to accept his radical scientific theories. His fiendish mind now plans the horrible revenge of leading his unconquerable horde of monster insects forth to ravage the world, destroy the human race, and establish a new era, the era of the insect. The world has to be warned of the impending doom. The two, with Hadia, a girl from Submundia, escape and pass through menacing dangers to within two miles of the exit. There, suddenly, Tommy sees towering over him a creature that turns his blood cold, a gigantic praying mantis. Before he has time to act, the monster springs at them. Chapter 7 Through the Inferno Fortunately, the monster miscalculated its leap. The huge legs, whirling through the air, came within a few inches of Tommy's head, but passed over him, and the mantis plunged into the stream. Instantly, the water was alive with leaping things with faces of such grotesque horror that Tommy sat paralyzed in his rocking shell, unable to avert his eyes. Things no more than a foot or two in length, to judge from the slender, eel-like bodies that leaped into the air, but things with catfish heads and tentacles, and eyes waving on stalks. Things with claw-like appendages to their ventral fins, and mouths that widened to fearful size, so that the whole head seemed to disappear above them, disclosing fangs like wolves. Instantly, the water was churned into phosphorescent fire as they precipitated themselves upon the struggling mantis, whose enormous form, extending halfway from shore to shore, was covered with river monsters, gnawing, rending, tearing. Luckily, the struggles of the dying monster carried it downstream instead of up. In a few moments, the immediate danger was past, and suddenly, Hadia awoke, sat up, "'Where are we?' she cried. "'Oh, I can see! I can see!' 
Something has burned away from my eyes. I know this place. A wise man of my people once came here and returned to tell of it. We must go on. Soon we shall be safe on the wide river. But there is another way that leads to here. We must go on. We must go on. Even as she spoke, they heard the distant rasping of the beetle legs, and before the shells were well in mid current, they saw the beetle horde coming round the bend. In the front of them, Bram, reclining on his shell couch and drawn by the eight trained beetles. Bram saw the fugitives, and a roar of ironic mirth broke from his lips, resounding high above the strident rasping of the beetle legs and roaring over the marshes. I've got you, Dodd and Travers, he bellowed, as the trained beetles hovered above the shell canoes. You thought you were clever, but you are at my mercy. Now's your last chance, Dodd. I'll save you still if you'll submit to me, if you'll admit that there were fossil monotremes before the Pleistocene epoch. Come, it's so simple. Say it after me. The marsupial lion. You go to hell, yelled Dodd, nearly upsetting his shell as he shook his fist at his enemy. High above the rasping sound came Dodd's shrill whistle, just audible to human ears, though probably sounding like the roar of thunder to those of the beetles. There was no need to wonder what it was. It was the call to slaughter. Like a black cloud, the beetles shot forward. A serried phalanx covered the two men and the girl, hovering a few feet overhead, the long legs dangling to within arm's reach, and a terrible cry of fear broke from Hadia's lips. Suddenly, Tommy remembered Bram's cigarette lighter. He pulled it from his pocket and ignited it. Small as the flame was, it was actinically much more powerful than the brighter phosphorescence of the fungi behind them. The beetle cloud overhead parted. The strident sound was broken into a confused buzzing as the terrified, blinded beetles plopped into the stream. None of them, fortunately, fell into either of the three shells, but the mass of struggling monsters in the water was hardly less formidable to the safety of the occupants than that menacing cloud overhead. Get clear, Tommy yelled to Dodd, trying to help the shell along with his hands. He heard Bram's cry of baffled rage, and looking backward, could not refrain from a laugh of triumph. Bram's trained steeds had taken fright and overset him. Bram had fallen into the red mud beside the stream, from which he was struggling up, plastered from head to feet, and shaking his fists, and evidently cursing, though his words could not be heard. How about your marsupial lion now, Bram? yelled Dodd. No monotremes before the Pleistocene? Did you get that? That's my slogan now and forevermore. Bram shrieked and raved and seemed to be inciting the beetles to a renewed assault. The air was still thick with them, but Tommy was waving the cigarette lighter in a flaming arc, which cleared the way for them. Then suddenly came disaster. The flame went out. Tommy closed the lighter with a snap and opened it. In vain. In his excitement, he must have spilled all the contents, for it would not catch. 
Bram saw and yelled derision. The beetle cloud was thickening. Tommy, now abreast of his companions on the widening stream, saw the imminent end. And then once more, fate intervened. For leaping through the air out of the places where they had lain concealed, six mantises launched themselves at their beetle prey. Those awful bounds of the long-legged monsters, the scourges of the insect world, carried them clear from one bank to the other, fortunately for the occupants of the shells. In an instant, the beetle cloud dissolved, and it had all happened in a few seconds. Before Dodd or Tommy had quite taken in the situation, the mantises, each carrying a victim in its grooved legs, had vanished like the beetles. There was no sign of Bram. The three were alone upon the face of the stream, which went swirling upward into renewed darkness. Tommy saw Dodd bend toward Hadia as she lay on her shell couch. He heard the sound of a noisy kiss, and he lay back in the hollow of his shell with the feeling that nothing that could happen in the future could be worse than what they had passed through. Days went by, days when the sense of dawning freedom filled their hearts with hope. Hadia told Dodd and Tommy that according to the legends of her people, the river ran into the world from which they had been driven by the floods ages before. There had been no further signs of Bram or the beetle horde, and Dodd and Tommy surmised that it had been disorganized by the attacks of the mantises, and that Bram was engaged in regaining his control over it. But neither of them believed that the respite would be a long one, and for that reason they rested ashore only for the briefest intervals, just long enough to snatch a little sleep and to eat some of the shrimps that Hadia was adept at finding, or to pull some juicy fruit surreptitiously from a tree. Incidents there were, nevertheless, during those days. For hours their shells were followed by a school of the luminous river monsters, which nevertheless made no attempt to attack them. And once, hearing a cry from Hadia as she was gathering shrimps, Dodd ran forward to see her battling furiously with a luminous scorpion, eight feet in length, that had sprung at her from its lurking place behind a pear shrub. Dodd succeeded in stunning and dispatching the monster without suffering any injury from it, but the strain of the period was beginning to tell on all of them. Worst of all, they seemed to have left all the luminous vegetation behind them, and were entering a region of almost total darkness in which Hadia had to be their eyes. Something had happened to the girl's sight in the journey over the petrol spring. As a matter of fact, the third or nicotating membrane which the humans of Submundia possessed, in common with birds, had been burned away. Hadia could see as well as ever in the dark, but she could bear more light than formerly as well. Unobtrusively, she assumed command of the party. She anticipated their wants, dug shrimps in the darkness, and fed Tommy and Dodd with her own hands. God, what a girl, breathed Dodd to his friend. I've always had the reputation of being a woman-hater, Tommy, but once I get that girl to civilization, I'm going to take her to the nearest little church around the corner in record time. 
I wish you luck, old man, I'm sure, answered Tommy. Dodd's words did not seem strange to him. Civilization was growing very remote to him, and Broadway seemed like a memory of some previous incarnation. The river was growing narrower again, and swifter too. On the last day or night of their journey, though they did not know that it was to be their last, it swirled so fiercely that it threatened every moment to overset their beetle shells. Suddenly, Tommy began to feel giddy. He gripped the side of his shell with his hand. Tommy! We're going round! shouted Dodd in front of him. There was no longer any doubt of it. The shells were revolving in a vortex of rushing, foaming water. Hadia! they shouted. The girl's voice came back thickly across the roaring torrent. The circles grew smaller. Tommy knew that he was being sucked nearer and nearer to the edge of some terrific whirlpool in that inky blackness. Now he could no longer hear Dodd's shouts, and the shell was tipping so that he could feel the water rushing along the edge of it. But for the exercise of centrifugal force, he would have been flung from his perilous seat, for he was leaning inward at an angle of 45 degrees. Then suddenly his progress was arrested. He felt the shell being drawn to the shore. He leaped out, and Hadia's strong hands dragged the shell out of the torrent, while Tommy sank down, gasping. "'What's the matter?' he heard Dodd demanding. "'There is no more river,' said Hadia calmly. "'It goes into a hole in the ground. "'So much I have heard from the wise men of my people. "'They say that it is near such a place "'that they fled from the floods in years gone by.' "'Then we're near safety,' shouted Tommy. "'That river must emerge as a stream somewhere in the upper world, Dodd. "'I wonder where the road lies.' "'There is a road here,' came Hadia's calm voice. "'Let us put on our shells again.' since who knows whether there may not be beetles here. Did you ever see such a girl as that? demanded Dodd ecstatically. First she saves our lives, and then she thinks of everything. Good Lord, she'll remember my meals, and wind my watch for me, and, and... But Hadia's voice, some distance ahead, interrupted Dodd's soliloquy, and, hoisting the beetle shells upon their backs, they started along the rough trail that they could feel with their feet over the stony ground. It was still as dark as pitch, but soon they found themselves traveling up a sunken way that was evidently a dry watercourse, and now and again Hadia's reassuring voice would come from in front of them. The road grew steeper. There could no longer be any doubt that they were ascending toward the surface of the earth but even the weight of the beetle shells and the steepness could not account for the feeling of intense weakness that took possession of them. Time and again they stopped, panting. We must be very near the surface, Dodd, said Tommy. We've surely passed the center of gravity. That's what makes it so difficult. Come on, Hadia said in her quiet voice stretching out her hand through the darkness, and for very shame they had to follow her. On and on, hour after hour, up the steep ascent, 
resting only long enough to make them realize their utter fatigue. On because Hadia was leading them, and because in the belief that they were about to leave that awful land behind them, their desires lent new strength to their limbs continuously. Suddenly, Hadia uttered a fearful cry. Her ears had caught what became apparent to Dodd and Jimmy several seconds later. Far down in the hollow of the earth, increased by the echoes that came rumbling up, they heard the distant, strident rasp of the beetle swarm. Then it was Dodd's turn to support Hadia and whisper consolation in her ears. No thought of resting now. If they were to be overwhelmed at last by the monsters, they meant to be overwhelmed in the upper air. It was growing insufferably hot. Blasts of air, as if from a furnace, began to rush up and down past them, and the trail was growing steeper still and slippery as glass. "'What is it, Jim?' Tommy panted, as Dodd, leaving Hadia for a moment, came back to him. "'I'd say lava,' Dodd answered. "'If only one could see something. "'I don't know how she finds her way. "'My impression is that we are coming out through the interior of some extinct volcano.' "'But where are there volcanoes in the South Polar regions?' inquired Tommy. "'There are Mount Erebus and Mount Terror in South Victoria land, "'active volcanoes discovered by Sir James Ross in 1841, "'and again by Borgrevink in 1899. "'If that's where we're coming out, well, Tommy, we're doomed, "'because it's the heart of the polar continent.' We might as well turn back. But we won't turn back, said Tommy. I'm damned if we do. We're damned if we don't, said Dodd. Come along, please, sang Hadia's voice high up the slope. They struggled on, and now a faint luminosity was beginning to penetrate that infernal darkness. The rasping of the beetle legs, too, was no longer audible. Perhaps they had thrown Bram off their track. Perhaps in the darkness he had not known which way they had gone after leaving the whirlpool. That thought encouraged them to a last effort. They pushed their flagging limbs up, upward through an inferno of heated air. Suddenly Dodd uttered a yell and pointed upward. God! ejaculated Tommy. Then he seized Dodd in his arms and nearly crushed him. For high above them, a pinpoint in the black void, they saw a star. They were almost at the earth's surface. One more effort, and suddenly the ground seemed to give beneath them. They breathed the outer air and went sliding down a chute of sand and stopped, half buried at the bottom. Chapter 8 Recaptured "'Where are we?' each demanded of the others, as they staggered out. It was a moonless night, and the air was chill, but they were certainly nowhere near the polar regions, for there was no trace of snow to be seen anywhere. All about them was sand, and here and there a spiny shrub standing up stiff and erect and solitary. When they had disengaged themselves from the clinging sand, they could see that they were apparently in the hollow of a vast crater that must have 
been half a mile in circumference. It was low and worn down to an elevation of not more than two or three hundred feet, and evidently the volcano that had thrown it up had been extinct for millennia. Water, gasped Dodd. They looked all about them. They could see no signs of a spring anywhere, and both were parched with thirst after their terrific climb. We must find water, Hadia, said Tommy. Why, what's the matter? Hadia was pointing upward at the starry heaven and shivering with fear. Eyes, she cried. Big beetle eyes waiting for us up there. No, no, Hadia, Dodd explained. Those are stars. They are worlds, places where people live. Will you take me up there? asked Hadia. No, this is our world, said Dodd. And by and by the sun will rise. That's a big ball of fire up there. He watches over the world and gives us light and warmth. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Hadia is not afraid with Jimmy Dodd to take care of her, replied the girl with dignity. Hadia smells water. Over there. She pointed across one side of the crater. There we'd better hurry, said Tommy, because I can't hold out much longer. The three scrambled over the soft sand, which sucked in their feet to the ankle at every step. It was with the greatest difficulty that they succeeded in reaching the crater's summit, low though it was. Then Dodd uttered a cry and pointed. In front of them extended a long pool of water with a scrubby growth around the edges. The ground was firmer here, and they hurried toward it. Tommy was the first to reach it. He lay down on his face and drank eagerly. He had taken in a quart before he discovered that the water was saline. At the same time, Dodd uttered an exclamation of disgust. Hadia, too, after sipping a little of the fluid, had stood up, chattering excitedly in her own tongue. But she was not chattering about the water. She was pointing toward the scrub. Men there, she cried. Men, like you and Tommy, Jimmy Dodd. Tommy and Dodd looked at each other, the water already forgotten in their excitement at Hadia's information, which neither of them doubted. Brave as she was, the girl now hung back behind Dodd, letting the two men take precedence of her. The water, saline as it was, had partly quenched their thirst. They felt their strength reviving, and it was growing light. In the east, the sky was already flecked with yellow-pink. They felt a thrill of intense excitement at the prospect of meeting others of their kind. "'Where do you think we are?' asked Tommy. Dodd stopped to look at the shrub that was growing near the edge of the pool. "'I don't think. I know, Tommy,' he answered. "'This is a wattle.' "'Yes?' "'We're somewhere in the interior regions of the Australian continent.' And that's not going to help us much. Over there, over there, panted Hadia. Hold me, Jimmy Dodd. I can't see. Ah, this terrible light. 
She screwed her eyelids tightly together to shut out the pale light of dawn. The men had already discovered that the third membrane had been burned away. We must get her out of here, whispered Dodd to Tommy. Somewhere where it's dark before the sun rises. Let's go back to the entrance of the crater. But Hadia, her arm extended, persisted. Over there! Over there! Suddenly, a spear came whirling out of a growth of wattle beside the pool. It whizzed past Tommy's face and dropped into the sand behind. Between the trunks of the wattles, they could see the forms of a party of blackfellows watching them intently. Tommy held up his arms and moved forward with a show of confidence that he was far from feeling. After what he had escaped in the underworld, he was in no mood to be massacred now. But the blacks were evidently not hostile. It was probable that the spear had not been aimed to kill. At the sight of the two white men and the white woman, they came forward doubtfully, then more fearlessly, shouting in their language. In another minute, Tommy and Dodd were the center of a group of wandering savages. Especially Hadia, three or four gins, or black women, had crept out of the scrub and were already examining her with guttural cries and fingering the hair garment that she wore. Water, said Tommy, pointing to his throat and then to the pool with a frown of disgust. The black fellows grinned and led the three a short distance to a place where a large hollow had been scooped in the sandy floor of the desert. It was full of water, perfectly sweet to the taste. The three drank gratefully. Suddenly, the edge of the sun appeared above the horizon, gilding the sand with gold. The sunlight fell upon the three, and Hadia uttered a terrible cry of distress. She dropped upon the sand, her hands pressed to her eyes convulsively. Tommy and Dodd dragged her into the thickest part of the scrub where she lay moaning. They contrived bandages from the remnants of their clothing, and these, damped with cold water and bound over the girl's eyes, alleviated her suffering somewhat. Meanwhile, the black fellows had prepared a meal of roast opossum. After their long diet of shrimps, It tasted like ambrosia to the two men. Much to their surprise, Hadia seemed to enjoy it too. The three squatted in the scrub among the friendly blacks, discussing their situation. These fellows will save us, said Dodd. It may be that we're quite near the coast, but anyway, they'll stick to us, even if only out of curiosity. They'll take us somewhere, but as soon as we get Hadia to safety, We'll have to go back along our trail. We mustn't lose our direction. Suppose I was laughed at when I got back, called a liar. I tell you, we've got to have something to show, to prove my statements, before I can persuade anybody to fit out an expedition into Submundia. Even those three beetle shells that we dropped in the crater won't be conclusive evidence for the type of mind that sits in the chairs of science today. And... Speaking of that, we must get those blacks to carry those shells for us. I tell you, nobody will believe. What's that? cried Tommy sharply, as a rasping sound rose above the cries of the frightened blacks. But there was no need to ask. Out of the crater, 
Two enormous beetles were winging their way toward them, two beetles larger than any they had seen. Fully seven feet in length, they were circling about each other, apparently engaged in a vicious battle. The fearful beaks stabbed at the flesh beneath the shells, and they alternately stabbed and drew back, all the while approaching the party, which watched them petrified with terror. It was evident that the monsters had no conception of the presence of humans. Blinded by the sun, only one thing could have induced them to leave the dark depths of Submundia. That was the mating instinct. The beetles were evidently rival leaders of some swarm, engaged in a duel to the death. Round and round they went in a dizzy maze, stabbing and thrusting, jaws closing on flesh, until they dropped, clothes locked in battle, not more than twenty feet from the little party of blacks and whites, both squirming in the agonies of death. "'I don't think that necessarily means that the swarm is on our trail,' said Tommy, a little later, as the three stood beside the shells that they had discarded. Those two were strays, lost from the swarm and maddened by the mating instinct. Still, it might be as well to wear these things for a while in case they do follow us. You're right, answered Dodd, as he placed one of the shells around Hadia. We've got to get this little lady to civilization, and we've got to protect our lives in order to give this great new knowledge to the world. If we are attacked... You must sacrifice your life for me, Tommy, so that I can carry back the news. Right-o, answered Tommy with alacrity. You bet I will, Jim. The glaring sun of mid-afternoon was shining down upon the desert, but Hadia was no longer in pain. It was evident that she was fast becoming accustomed to the sunlight, though she still kept her eyes screwed up tightly and had to be helped along by Dodd and Jimmy. In high good humor, the three reached the encampment to find that the blacks were feasting on the dead beetles, while the two eldest members of the party had proudly donned the shells. It was near sunset before they finally started. Dodd and Tommy had managed to make it clear to them that they wished to reach civilization, but how near this was, there was, of course, no means of determining. They noted, however, that the party started in a southerly direction. "'I should say,' said Dodd, "'that we are in South Australia, "'probably three or four hundred miles from the coast. "'We've got a long journey before us, "'but these black fellows will know how to procure food for us.' "'They certainly knew how to get water, "'for just as it began to grow dark "'when the three were already tormented by thirst,' They stopped at what seemed a mere hollow among the stones and boulders that strewed the face of the desert, and scooped away the sand, leaving a hole which quickly filled with clear, cold water of excellent taste. After which they made signs that they were to camp there for the night. The moon was riding high in the sky. As it grew dark, Hadia opened her eyes, saw the luminary, and uttered an exclamation this time not of fear, but of wonder. Moon, said Dodd. That's all right, girl. She watches over the night, as the sun does over the day. Hadia likes the moon better than the sun, said the girl wistfully. 
but the moon not strong enough to keep away the beetles. If I was you, I'd forget about the beetles, Hadia, said Dodd. They won't come out of that hole in the ground. You'll never see them again. And as he spoke, they heard a familiar rasping sound far in the distance. How the wind blows, said Tommy, desperately resolved not to believe his ears. I think a storm's coming up. But Hadia, with a scream of fear, was clinging to Dodd, and the blacks were on their feet, spears and boomerangs in their hands, looking northward. Out of that north a little black cloud was gathering, a cloud that spread gradually as a thundercloud until it covered a good part of the sky, and still more of the sky, and still more. All the while that faint, distant rasping was audible, but it did not increase in volume. It was as if the beetles had halted until the full number of the swarm had come up out of the crater. Then the cloud, which by now covered half the sky, began to take geometric form. It grew square. The ragged edges seemed to trim themselves away. Streaks of light shot through it at right angles, as if it was marshalling itself into companies. The doomed men and the girl stood perfectly still, staring at that phenomenon. They knew that only a miracle could save them. They did not even speak but Hadia clung more tightly to Dodd's arm. Then suddenly the cloud spread upward and covered the face of the moon. Well, this is goodbye, Tommy, said Dodd, gripping his friend's hand. God, I wish I had a revolver or a knife, he looked at Hadia. Suddenly the rasping became a whining shriek. A score of enormous beetles, the advance guards of the army, zoomed out of the darkness into a ray of straggling moonlight. Shrieking, the blacks, who had watched the approaching swarm perfectly immobile, threw away the two shells and bolted. "'Good Lord!' Dodd shouted. "'Did you see the color of their shells, Tommy?' Even in that moment the scientific observer came uppermost in him. "'Those red edges! They must be young ones, Tommy!' It's the new brood. No wonder Bram stayed behind. He was waiting for them to hatch. The new brood. We're doomed. Doomed. All my work wasted. The black fellows did not get very far. A hundred yards from the place where they started to run, they dropped, their bodies hidden beneath the clustering monsters, their screams cut short as those frightful beaks sought their throats, and those jaws crunched through the flesh and bone. Circling around Dodd, Tommy, and Hadia, as if puzzled by their appearance, the beetles kept up a continuous, furious droning that sounded like the roar of Niagara mixed with the shrieking of a thousand sirens. The moon was completely hidden, and only a dim, nebulous light showed the repulsive monsters as they flew within a few feet of the heads of the fugitives. The stench was overpowering. But suddenly a ray of white light shot through the darkness, and, with a changed note just perceptible to the ears 